Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love talking about history and old stuff and making things, um, either historical things or not. And we like to start by talking about what we're currently making. So what are you up to? I don't think I've started or finished any projects since we last recorded. Well, the thing is, I had a birthday, so I've mostly just been having birthday fun. You mean birthday fun doesn't include obsessively making things? I've been been working on existing projects. But I, I did buy some some new hair ribbons because I am a Victorian lady, apparently. Who requires new hair ribbons to celebrate my date of birth. Who isn't a Victorian lady in these times of pandemic? <laughs> That's true. I relate very strongly to Victorian ladies right now. <laughs> <laughs> Just, like, enjoying fripperies and sighing by the window. I mean, I, I did spend a whole £4.50 on earrings, so, you oh, know. I would consider that a frippery, in a good <laughs> way. Well, it's not my fault Claire's had all of their Halloween stuff on offer. That is not your fault, I agree. So, <laughs> what what have you been up to? Presumably <laughs> more than me. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that, like, yeah, working on some stuff. Um... I mentioned I was making stuff for this community garden craft fair, I think, a couple episodes ago. But um, yeah, I can elaborate on that. Um, it's So this community garden my parents are involved with, they uh, have a stall at our village's um, Christmas market. Well, not just the Christmas market. There's an old... Um, so my, villi- my village... Um, well, the next village over from me, but still kind of my village, I think, um, has a cattle market that is now a car park, but the original cattle market and everything is still there, um, which is kind of cool. And then next to that is the world's tiniest town square, <laughs> because the village used to be a lot more important and, you know, was considered like a, a decent sized town by kind of medieval standards um and it's now you know because of um like rivers silting up and stuff um it's now no longer an important port no longer important haha um i know and (laughs) and um it's it's now like a tiny village but it still has this this little town square that is owned by the town trust um, and it has a license for a market that it's had for like hundreds of years yeah. because they used to have one. So like they they um, brought back this market fairly recently, That's which fun. is cool. Yeah. So yeah, tiny village market. It's fun, but um, the community garden has a stall there, and um, so I'm making some stuff for the like Christmas stall um, to raise some money for the garden. And it's just like little amigurumi um, insects and and things. 
Nice. Um, yeah. We love a bug. They they are very good. Actually, I, I will um put the link to the patterns that I'm using on the Twitter um because they're really great. Um and the uh the designer um allows them to be sold for nonprofit, which is really nice of them. Nice. Um yeah, but actually I feel like because I showed it to my mum the other day and she was like Oh, I don't. I don't think we should sell that. I think we should keep them to use as like educational displays. So I was like, hmm, okay, maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm making a little butterfly, and there's like a whole life cycle set of patterns. So it's like a um, a caterpillar, and there's like an egg that you can put it into, and then you take out the caterpillar, and there's like a cocoon that goes with it, and then you like put wings on the caterpillar, and it becomes a butterfly. And it's amazing. Um, Very cool. Yeah. The designer, I think the website is Lely Lala or something. I I will yeah link to it because they are great. Um, and it's coming out very well. So I have a cocoon and a caterpillar so far. And that is it. So this is a bio slash book episode and I mentioned Victorian ladies mm -hmm. would you like to hear about a Victorian lady I sure would which one there were quite a lot have you heard of Mrs Beaton now I have indeed come across Mrs Beaton yes um but the thing is um as I was saying earlier, when we were just sort of chatting before this episode, um, I have heard of Mrs. Beaton because she's like a big deal in Victorian cooking. Um, but I don't actually know very much about Mrs. Beaton other than wrote a cookbook, which is a big deal in Victorian cooking. So, yeah, I'm excited to find out more. So. Mrs. Beaton is is def very definitely Victorian. She was born in 1836, so she would have been about a year old when the Victorian era started. Okay. That, that um, is super Victorian. Yeah. Firmly Victorian, I think. <laughs> um, in a part of London that I never know how to pronounce, but I'm going to go with Marylebone. Malibu? I've heard it pronounced like five different ways. Okay. Um, to a linen merchant and his wife. Um, she had two younger sisters, and then her father died, and her mum remarried, and got four stepchildren. And then had lots of children with the new husband. So Isabella Mason, as she was, ended up the oldest of 20 children. Oh, wow. Okay. Also, Isabella. I was about to ask what her first name was because I assume it wasn't Mrs. <laughs> <laughs> that is a lot of siblings to have. Yeah, I can't find information on how many survived because obviously... Victorian families um, mm -hmm. but she referred to 
her siblings as a living cargo of children, so we have to assume probably most of them. Yeah, that sounds like a lot. I mean, if by Victorian standards you're like, oh, that's a lot of kids, it's probably a lot. Yeah. Um, apparently, the, the, one of the younger ones, um, Alfred, thought that the number of children that his father and mother had was ridiculous. Um, so he sent his father a condom as a practical joke. Oh, wow. And in response, his father sent him into the Merchant Navy. Because <laughs> at that point, as, well, just generally, it's a bit much. But apparently at that point, they were mostly used by sex workers. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was an, an unwelcome implication and impropriety. I can see how that could be taken the wrong way in presumably the 1840s or 50s. I mean, also now, frankly. (laughs) Yeah, I would also say it's probably not usual to send your parents a condom. So yeah, she went to boarding school in Islington and in Heidelberg. Oh, wow. Um, Heidelberg is where she learned a lot of baking skills, especially. And when she came back, she took uh, pastry lessons from a, a baker in Epsom. As far as they could afford to send her abroad to study with that many children. I guess they were just doing very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, yeah, her stepfather was the one of the first clerks of Epsom Racecourse, so presumably he had a lot of money. Ah. Fingers in many pies, as it were. Probably mm. not as many as his daughter. Um, but yeah, so eventually she marries uh, Samuel Beaton, who was okay. the founder of Boys Own magazine. That's Boys Own, <laughs> not Boys Own. <laughs> I was thinking that, and I'm glad you said it. I mean, it makes sense that it would not be Boys Own with a Z. <laughs> <laughs> Although I would like to see Victorian Boys Own. Um, but that was a, a very popular magazine for um, for boys. Mm-hmm. Which was basically a, a newspaper for children almost. I think I have heard, is that where, you know, stuff like the boys' own book of adventures comes from? Yeah, they kind of, they all spin off from that. Okay. Um, he was also the first British publisher of Uncle Tom's Cabin, so he was obviously very well off himself. Okay. But he actually also started publishing Mrs. Beaton's writings. In, um, including recipes, but also sort of general domestic writings in the English Woman's Domestic Magazine. Uh, It does help when your husband is a publisher. Definitely. Yeah, so that was a magazine for middle-class women. Mm -hmm. Um, She started out translating French fiction to serialise and then started working on a cookery column. 
Oh, interesting. So she started out in fiction, not cookery. She did, and some would argue she stayed in fiction. Ah. Um, so there was a controversy about her books and recipes. Because, um, so she got a letter from one of her sisters, uh, Henrietta, saying, Cookery is a science that is only learnt by long experience and years of study, which of course you have not had. Oh. And advising her to maybe borrow from other things, compile recipes from other books. Mm-hmm. Um, so she ended up straight up copying recipes, including from quite famous chefs and cookery writers, including Eliza Acton, Hannah Glass, Antoine Carême. Hey, so she took that very literally. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's thought by um, some of her biographers that she just full-on copied most of her recipes. Wow, see me after class, Isabella Beaton. Yeah. Didn't know that. There's a little bit of a debate because a lot of her recipes are at that basic level of, you could argue that it's um, sort of uncopyrightable. Some of the stuff, but some of it is just very blatantly copied from, especially mm-hmm. French cookery writers. Okay. Hmm. My opinion of Mrs. Beaton is is less favorable now. Um. Some of the editing is also just bad. Like. On the same page, she talks about how tomatoes are wholesome and stimulate the appetite, and also how they, quote, emit a vapour so powerful as to cause vertigo and vomiting. Which is it, Isabella? (laughs) Okay. I mean, I can't ever say that I've ever thrown up at the smell of tomatoes. Yeah, so the the editing isn't great. The recipes are largely not her own. Um, and some of them do use ingredients that she also talks about not liking. Like, um, potatoes are apparently suspicious. <laughs> and well. mangoes taste like turpentine. Is she eating it green or something? Because even that can be delicious. Like, what? Like, it's very much a thing of upper-class British people going, ah, all these places that were profiting from colonising. Their food is awful and evil and I won't touch it. Except to pretend that I invented it. It's just, it's wild to me. I don't know, though. Potatoes, man. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like they are giving me an eye. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> yeah, there's also just some 
questionable advice? Like, not Victorian questionable, just regular questionable. Like, she talks about cooking vermicelli for half an hour, boiling mm. it. Like, whatever else you do with it at that point, I don't think that's pasta anymore. Everyone likes mush, right? But this is especially for putting in soup. So you're just... Oh. So the word pasta comes from the word for paste. Uh-huh. And I think she's maybe taking that a little bit too far by making a pasta soup that's just some nice broth <laughs> with some mush in the bottom. Oh, uh, I, I can imagine that. I can imagine the texture and I do not like it. Yeah. Mmm, no. Interesting thing about pasta, though, she does also have some sweet macaroni dishes. Okay. Including, like, a macaroni baked in a custard. Which honestly sounds kind of nice. It's like a lemon custard with a little bit of nutmeg. Yeah, I feel like that could be good. Except once again, she cooks the macaroni for 50 minutes. Oh, no. Okay, so you're basically breaking it down into just, like, starch. <laughs> yeah, I... I don't know. Like, that just sounds like a stiff custard. Would you like me to read out the recipe for this? By all means. Put the milk into a saucepan with the lemon peel and sugar. Bring it to boiling point. So you're already boiling milk, which is not going to taste good. Okay. Bring it, yeah, bring it to the boiling point. Drop in the macaroni and let it gradually swell over a gentle fire, but do not allow the pipes to break. Again. She says it takes 40 to 50 minutes for this. Eight. Like, even cooking it from dried, which I have to assume is what she's doing when, she, when she's talking about letting it swell, that's, uh, that is not going to be tender, should be firm and not soft. Hmm. <laughs> You're boiling this pasta for 50 minutes. Good luck, I guess. Wow. That is unappealing. Mmm. But you know, most of her recipes are pretty good, which is probably why this book has never been out of print. Okay. Um, for reference, this year is the 60th, 160th, sorry, anniversary of oh, Miss wow. Household Management. I didn't realise it was continuously in print. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I wonder how many people like actually use the recipes regularly. I am unclear on that part because, you know, at a certain point it's going to be more for historical interest. Yeah. Yeah, but also because it was largely marketed at middle class women, like there's stuff about how to hire servants and the rights and responsibilities of landlords. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think it's for 
hooks TM, if you know what I mean. Okay. I could I feel like it's one of those cookbooks that we've talked about before that's more so you can keep an eye on what your cook is doing rather than Ah, I see. Okay. Yeah. And you can maybe go into the kitchen every now and then and make some of the dish. Yeah, you know, you can you can make the macaroni custard yourself one day when it's cook's day off. <laughs> Yeah, that does give a vibe. Mm. Um, interestingly, so the first edition after her death contained an obituary notice. Mm-hmm. But most editions didn't mention the fact that she died only four years after it was published. Oh. And there's a lot of speculation that this was basically so that it would continue to sell. And people could imagine her out there cooking all of the recipes herself. I see. Okay, so people would, you know, theoretically think that Mrs. Beaton was, like, a continuing presence. Um, Wow. That's almost like trying to create a celebrity when they're not there. Mm. I mean, especially considering that she was only... um... Not quite 29 when she died. Oh, no way. I also did not know that. Wow. 1836 to 1865. Wow. Which kind of hits you like a slap in the face when you realise that. I mean, yeah, that's that's not far off our ages. And if they... Like publishing it basically saved Samuel Beaton's business. Apparently, he made some very bad investments the same year that it was published. I, I guess it it doesn't really surprise me though that they would um sort of try and carry on the brand even though she died because that does seem to be a thing with like popular things in that era i remember in the um teresa dillmont episode Mm. they had her niece i think it was take over her name essentially so they could continue selling the books yeah and i mean especially when it's uh, her husband is basically entirely in charge of the mrs beaten brand yeah that sounds being her husband it does seem like he was kind of exploiting it a bit Hmm. Was everything that she wrote published through him? From what I can find, I I haven't been able to find anything, anything that wasn't. Hmm. Like her and she basically owed her entire career to him. Okay. I wonder, like, if there was a contract or anything, or if it was literally just him doing it. That's the thing, because he was her husband and it was the 1860s. So I think it would be expected that he would just run all of the business end of it, even if yeah. he was a different publisher. Um, but yeah, there is there is some interesting stuff outside of the, the cooking part, including the there's a lot of talk about she writes a lot about how the human body works. 
some accurate stuff, some less accurate stuff. Okay. Wait, in, in what context is it? Um, mostly talking about um, infant health. There's a lot. There's a whole chapter on sort of raising children and the nursery and childhood diseases. Mm-hmm. Including a bit where she talks about being very thankful that the state makes people vaccinate their children against smallpox. Oh. Which I just find interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yes, yeah, she she talks about the digested food um, going straight into the arteries. Mm-hmm. Like there's kind of a, a rudimentary understanding of digestion, but not really an accurate one. Um. And there's in. There's instructions for infant CPR, including in the case of stillbirth. Oh, wow. Um, some of it is, you know, stuff that you see on things like Call the Midwife, where, like, they'll rub the baby's back really vigorously. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently if that doesn't work, you can try plunging the child up to the neck in 80-degree um, Fahrenheit, presumably, water. Um, wow I mean that'll be something I guess like I guess sometimes a shock will do it maybe like it's not an unpleasant temperature it's about 27 degrees okay but I'm not really sure what it would do to help yeah like if they're choking I don't I don't know what I I did my um... apparently if they've been born not breathing because their impure blood is going to their lungs rather than going through the heart like it's supposed to. Oh, I see. So it's like birth advice. Yeah. It's it's some interesting stuff. But, I mean, there is also a pharmacy section where most of the treatments are some sort of narcotic mixed with sugar. (laughs) Yay. Which will do something. I actually did my um, infant CPR training quite recently and it was it was it was quite interesting. Um, like the holding them upside down and bashing them on the back thing is, is still a thing. Um, but also they demonstrate it and then they give you the baby dummy and you're suddenly like, oh my gosh, I don't want to hurt the baby. <laughs> Um, interestingly a lot of her breastfeeding advice matches current advice oh Um, she talks about breastfeeding for a few months and then gradually introducing solid food and saying you can you can breastfeed for longer, mm-hmm. um, but that you don't. There's not really much benefit to it after about fifteen months, which 
about matches the current advice, tend to say 12 months now. Okay. And she says that it is uncalled for to breastfeed after after 15 months. <laughs> and that you you must feed them other things as well. Oh. Which I guess people who don't have like food security might well try and breastfeed exclusively for longer to save on food. Yeah, I see. But I don't think they're the people who are going to be buying Mrs. Beaton's book. <laughs> yeah, they're probably not the people who are going to be making the vermicelli custard. Yes, she also warns against co-sleeping, which is actually illegal now because it is dangerous. Mm, yeah. Oh, well, at least that's some good advice. Yeah, like, there is some genuinely good advice in there, but I, it seems to be largely stuff that would be received wisdom. Like, this is probably stuff that she learned from her mother. Yeah. And while helping to raise 20 children because she was the oldest sister and that's what happens. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I can see how the, the child-related advice would probably be fairly good. Yeah, she, t she talks about how, you know, she had the benefit of helping to raise younger siblings and a lot of people don't. So she's okay. passing on all of that wisdom, which... I, I think it's quite cool. Like like I say, a lot of it is received wisdom, but I guess the thing with received wisdom is not everyone receives it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's quite useful to receive it from somebody. She talks a little bit about um, various weaning foods, including um, baked flour mixed with um, various things like arrowroot as a kind of low nutritional value but gets them used to food kind of thing. Um, interestingly, there's also a whole section on uh, convulsions or infantine, fit, um, infantine fits. Oh. And also describes rickets as fre a frequent result of dental irritation while talking about teething. Right. Huh. Yeah, like, I don't know how you make that connection. Yeah, and one of the first aid advice advices she gives for convulsions is, again, submerse the child in a hot bath up to the chin. <laughs> Which I'm not sure how helpful that's going to be. No. And there's a whole section, because like I say, she talks about how important it is to vaccinate against smallpox. She also talks about um, chicken pox. Okay. And how even though it is, it is mild, it is still bad and you shouldn't deliberately infect your children. And it just makes me think about pox parties. Hint, hint, people of today, yeah. <laughs> apparently, that's that's been a thing for a while. Okay. But she also I... reassures parents that they shouldn't worry about um disfigurement from chickenpox like you get from smallpox. Hmm. Wow. I mean, yeah. I 
I don't remember like actual chicken pox parties being a thing, but I certainly remember it just being no big deal. You expect your kid to get it. You don't try and stop them. Um, well, I've, I've mostly heard of pox parties as like an affluent anti-vax American thing, although I'm sure they do happen here as well. Uh-huh. Okay. And yes, yeah, she also she also, as I said, she has a whole section of sort of pharmaceutical things, including a very long list of the principal poisons with their antidotes or remedies. Here's a list of all of the poisons, everyone. Including, you know, multiple kinds of arsenic. Okay. Good to know, I guess. Apparently for food poisoning, it's emetics and castor oil. Actually, I suppose if these are things that you might have in your household reasonably, it's good to know. Like, oh, yeah, definitely. Like, one of the arsenic things is listed as fly powder. Hmm. And there's also... Um, some poisonous plants that you might encounter just in a garden, like foxgloves. Okay. Yeah, like, yeah. If, if you're having these around, it's probably good to know how much of them is poisonous. Oh, it doesn't say how much of them is poisonous. Oh, okay. Or how much of the antidote or remedy to give them. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just these things are poisonous. Yeah, it's just like, if your child has eaten smelling salts, give them lemon juice and vinegar. Apparently that'll help. Okay. <laughs> but she does also go in depth about the symptoms of poisoning from these different things, which I imagine is genuinely useful. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Which I just find it interesting because I know it's called the Book of Household Management, but it does generally get talked about as a cookbook. Mm -hmm. But it's got all this stuff, like I say, about, you know, poisons, being a landlord or being a tenant, hiring staff. Yeah, that's a whole, that's almost, it's almost like the upper class Victorian version of Bullcook. Yes. <laughs> Interestingly as well, every recipe has a cost on it. Oh, what, like, sorry? Every recipe has a price. Oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like um, the average cost per portion. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Which is quite cool. Yeah. Yeah, she that's really thrift a lot actually she also talks about the correct amount to pay various domestic servants ah that's that's really interesting to have as like a historical evidence for what things cost definitely yeah um so like i said she died in 1865, um, probably of puerperal fever, uh, okay. sometimes known as childbed fever. Mm. And in 1866, because Samuel continued 
to not be very good at this. Um, I actually sold the rights to the book to another publisher. Oh, okay. Well done, Samuel. Um, biographers generally agree that it was a terrible deal that he made. <laughs> and it was these publishers, uh, Wardlock and Co., who mm-hmm. apparently decided to just just ignore the fact that she's dead because people find it more palatable, I guess. Find it it's more marketable to sell a book by someone who's alive, apparently. Yeah. I I can imagine like for a, a cookbook or a domestic sort of book. Yeah. Um, but the posthumous criticism of it is a lot. Like, okay. um, especially from modern chefs, uh, Clarissa Dixon Wright uh-huh. um, says that she basically irreparably damaged English cookery and is responsible for the decline of gastronomic innovation in Britain in the 19th and and early 20th centuries. Go off, Clarissa. And people basically say because she became this ubiquitous thing, people were kind of reluctant to step outside of her particular brand of early Victorian cuisine. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, Mrs. Beaton was just a generic term, sort of way of referring to an authority on cooking by the 1890s, according to the Oxford Dictionary. Oh, right. Wow. So I think she's she's definitely an influential woman. Mm. Whether she deserves to be seen as an influential woman, it seems has been questioned for pretty much the whole existence of the book. Yeah. I mean, I suppose when something is that big, it's going to get a lot of criticism. But then there are also a lot of collections like that from the past. There's, there's where... criticism and there's criticism. Yeah, yeah. If it's still getting like vehemently criticised today. <laughs> yeah, like... You know, influential, some definitely useful information, holistic approach to the running of a household, but also plagiarism, some not particularly good stuff in there in the first place. Yeah. Bit of a mixed bag, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Like Overall, I think it's it's worth having a copy of just for historical interest, and there's some genuinely yeah. good recipes in there. It's just unclear how many of those genuinely good recipes are by Mrs. Beaton. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, I let us know what you think. I guess Mrs. Beacon, Mrs. Beacon, Mrs. Beacon, Beacon. <laughs> Can I do that again? Can't even say her name. <laughs> Um, let us know what you think, I guess. Mrs. Beaton, icon or ruined cookery for hundreds of years. 
not necessarily ruined, but I think I think stagnated is. I don't know because blaming her for the stagnation from her thing being popular when I mean, she was yeah. only alive for the first few years of its existence seems unfair. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like if she'd lived, she might have published something better. But I think I think it's interesting to think about. Um, so if you have a suggestion for an episode or you just want to say hi, you can email us um, at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at breadandthread um, and the same on YouTube and Tumblr uh, for all of your bread and thread social media needs. And if you want to support us, we also have a Patreon, Bread and Thread where you can get access to a Discord server where we talk about things that we've been making and baking and monthly recipes, which are not plagiarised from Eliza Acton. <laughs> Allegedly. I, I stand by this. <laughs> They're mostly my recipes. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>